each Sunday, I do express my personal gratitude and representative of Christ's covenant. I express our gratitude for whoever comes to share the word as a guest pastor. And we have been extraordinarily blessed over this last 20 months with men who love the scripture, love Jesus, and have shown that in loving us as a church body. And we are grateful for that. But this morning, I'm, I'm extra grateful. I'm grateful that God has brought us the opportunity that Rich Brown could speak this morning, grateful for his work on the session and a part of this church, and for the time that we have had uh, in the interview process. I'm grateful for the obvious love that you've expressed to this church body. So, Rich, thank you and welcome. Thanks again, Derek, for that warm welcome. And so good to be with you all again. Um, third time now, and it just it feels like whenever I'm away, I feel like I'm missing you all, even when I was gone the last couple of weeks. But um, just want to wish you a warm uh, welcome and, and greetings in the Lord. And um, I know as we're beginning this season of Advent, we're still kind of fairly early on in the month. And yet I imagine that I wasn't the only one right after Thanksgiving, the very next day, who ran out and went to go grab a Christmas tree. And I imagine not by a show of hands, but many of us were probably in that same boat, eager to get to Christmas. It's been a very long year, to say the least. And many of us are just excited for what Christmas entails. You know, the season where we behold the wondrous mystery, as Derek was just sharing with us, that Christ took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And so we're going to be looking at John 1, verses 1 through 18 this very morning. But in the meantime, um, I'm just reminded of, again, just the wondrous mystery that this season of Advent brings to us. I mean, all of our senses are just being uh, pricked in a good way uh, from the sights and the smells and the sounds of the Christmas season, from you know, the pine tree smell that is probably pervading our homes right now, or at least mine right now, uh, hot cocoa that we're drinking in the evenings, Christmas carols and hymns being sung all around, even this very morning hearing Christmas music, and just being reminded of the very fact that we are being drawn to a place in this season to worship our Christ who was given to us in love. This very uh, season, I'm reminded of even just the wonder of music, music itself. Uh, I myself uh, have actually had voice lessons in years past, which I probably shouldn't tell a Christian, but you know, I might get sucked into uh, pulling, uh, you know, singing uh, occasionally or whatnot down the road, but um, I also played the trombone for many years, you know, that goofy-looking brass instrument with a slide on the end, and I uh, played it for eight years. Um, in retrospect, I imagine my parents despised that, you know, but I loved it in the moment, all eight years of being in the marching band and jazz band and symphonic bands and all kinds of things. Um, but one thing I, I still love about that kind of music is that it just reminds me of the joyfulness that, uh, that these Christmas hymns bring to our minds. Uh, and even singing some of the hymns this morning, I caught, as a former musician myself, you know, the 4-4 rhythm and the 3-4 rhythm of certain songs. And for you all who might be musicians or have an ear for it, uh, you probably caught on to certain songs, like It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, having a more kind of upbeat kind of rhythm, that 1-2-3, 1-2-3 kind of rhythm. And in music, it's very uh, important because it actually compels us forward in the lines that are being uh, sung. That one, two, three, one, two, three rhythm keeps pushing us forward with a kind of tension and resolve, tension and resolve kind of formula. It's very intentional and not to dabble too much into music theory this morning, I know that's not why we came here this morning, but I think it's important to note that because in the book of John, right here in the prologue to the book itself, is a whole series, a whole slew of triads. 
three-part statements, that one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three kind of rhythm that prepares us, just like music does for worship, it prepares us to receive Christ as our king. And so I would actually invite us at this time to turn, if you haven't already, to John 1, verses 1 through 18. And if you haven't noticed this before, be on the lookout for this kind of triad, this three-part statement that is used over and over and over again in John 1. As we arrive at John 1, I would invite us to also be reminded that this is the very word of God given to us in love. It's forever true, forever uh, faithful, and it will accomplish what it is set out to do. So as we come to the word, be mindful of these things. This is the word of God for us from John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. With this in mind, let's uh, come before our Heavenly Father in prayer. God, we thank you that you are the one who invites us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, observing the fullness of grace and truth itself in Christ himself. God, we ask that as your word has been opened, as we attend to it, and as we look even very closely at it from a very theological perspective this very morning, would you remind us of the truth that you are eternal and forever and ever will be, and that you have made us for yourself. And so, God, we ask that as your word is preached, <clears throat> as it is expounded upon, may I simply get out of the way. Let me simply be a vessel of mercy within your own hands, used to declare uh, such marvelous mysteries that are far too great for me. But, Father, would you use this servant of yours to, to shepherd and to serve your church through this text, for you love your church so dearly. God, I pray that we would be encouraged and enlivened, that our souls would be enlarged because of um, the truth that we are given to this, uh, this very day to us. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, you may have noticed that today's Advent theme of peace is actually nowhere to be found in the actual text, the word peace itself. 
And yet, ironically enough, that theme of peace that Derek was alluding to earlier is implicitly all throughout the text. Because peace itself has everything to do with a position. Again, peace has everything to do with a position. See, when our hard work doesn't pay the dividends that we desired, or our relationships, even the most endearing of ones, seem to fall by the wayside, or when our strength begins to fail us over the years, we begin to lack peace. We often say things like, I feel disjointed, or I feel out of place, when what we really mean is, I don't feel peace right now. I don't feel peace. And those times, in essence, we are not positioned where we belong. We feel, again, out of place and therefore without peace. But there's this glorious truth in this passage that calls us to take note of our position before God himself, the one who gives us his peace. As the church father, Augustine, once famously said, you know, oh Lord, our souls were made for you. And our souls are restless until they find rest, or in other words, peace in you. And so to understand the concept of peace here in our passage, I believe it will help us to understand and to realize that the Spirit of God who inspired this very text and has given it to us is the very one who makes God's peace known to us through the use of two key words in our passage. Again, peace itself might not be here by name, but these two key words enliven our senses to understand that peace. And those two words are light and glory. And they're repeated over and over again in this passage. Light in verses 1 through 13, followed by glory in verses 14 through 18. Now, as we had read earlier, we know that the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, is none other than Jesus himself. John 1.1 echoes the very sentiment of Genesis 1.1, which you probably have caught before, that in Genesis 1.1 it says that God created, in the beginning, the heavens and the earth. And then in John 1.1, he picks up, the gospel writer picks up with that same sentiment that in the beginning was the word. And here we come to our first of many triads that I was referring to earlier. This three-part statement that is right before us. It says this in particular, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we're faced with that kind of tension of, well, then who or what is the word itself? And what is the resolution to that? Well, right here in the very context, it says this, that essentially, the word was in the beginning. In the beginning, signifying eternality. You know, this word is of eternal substance. But it also says something further, that this word was with God. So not only do we see this aspect, this attribute of, of the word's eternality, but we also see an aspect of his personality, his personhood, because he has a relationship with God himself from the very beginning. And then we also see in that third part, this word's divinity. The word was God, scripture tells us. Now many other cults and, and religions and whatnot will claim that Jesus Christ himself was not God of very God. Or that maybe they might say, well, he became a God here in this, in this life because of his good works. And, you know, we too, therefore, can become gods like him by following his example. But that is not what scripture, God's inspired word, teaches us to believe concerning God. See, God himself is revealed to us here, the word in particular, as God. 
is what grammarians call right here this idea of the predicate nominative to go into a little uh, kind of biblical studies with us all this morning. A predicate nominative, you know, the word was God. It shows equality. It shows that these two ideas are so intertwined that they cannot be separated. The word was God. Our eternal God, therefore, we know right from John 1.1, is eternal in substance, same in substance with the rest of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, equal in power and glory, though distinguished by personal properties. I realize that those terms might sound a little foreign to us in today's vernacular, but we'd ask ourselves, well, what are those personal properties then? Well, Westminster uh, Larger Catechism, question 10, answers that very thing for us. It says this, that it is actually proper of the Father to beget the Son, and it is proper of the Son to be begotten of the Father. Meaning from all eternity, the Son was at the Father's side, always close to the Father. And what's beautiful is that this truth goes on. We see all throughout Scripture that God the Father is of none. He's neither begotten nor made, nor proceeding from the, from the Son or the Spirit, but rather the Son himself is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from them both. And so we see right here, even in this text, the relationship of the Trinity right there on display. This tension of, well, who is the Word is resolved with this conclusion, this resolution. The Word is God. Christ is God. He's the eternal Son. Now, as we continue to read on, we're going to see a whole other series of triads, three-part statements as we move forward. In verses 2 through 3, we see the next three-part statement. And you can probably see this for yourself right here, but it says that this eternal Son of God was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And then thirdly, without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Christ himself is the Lord of life, the one by whom everything was made. All things were made through him, and by him, and for him, for his glory. And so to live apart from Christ, ultimately, is to not live as we were designed to be. Moving on in verses 4 through 5, we see yet another triad, another three-part statement. The gospel writer here tells us that this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and then finally the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, for all of our sinful suppression of the truth, all of our faithlessness, our feeble attempts to push away the Lord of life, to hide ourselves from the light of the world, Jesus Christ himself, they will prove futile. All of our attempts. The darkness we know from scripture, though, could not overcome Christ, and it still cannot. The light of the world who walked amongst us cannot be hidden. And this much is evident of us to this very day. I mean, 2,000 years later, the gospel is still being preached. And people are receiving in faith the word, the word of life, Christ himself. And this much is our motivation that Christ the king is king and cannot be dethroned. His kingdom is unshaken and it is forever. So friends, this truth is so evident to us right here in this text that the light Christ has overcome our darkness. Now, by this point, you may have already picked up on several other triads or three-part statements that are also right here in John 1. 
In verses 6 through 8, it tells us that John the baptizer was sent by God. He came to bear witness about the light, Jesus, so that all might believe through his testimony. But he himself was not the light, of course. Rather, John was purposed to bear witness about the light, to reveal something about Christ that needed to be made evident to the people. And he proved on the basis of his own testimony, as we'll read later on in John, but not only his testimony, but that three-part, that three-fold nuance, his testimony, but also the water and the blood. The water in the baptism of Jesus sprinkled over him, and the sprinkled blood as well in his crucifixion. These three testifying of Christ, the eternal Son of God, the light who was made manifest. And so from verses 9 through 13, we continue to see the repetition of threes. This time it's a bit more convoluted, to be honest, because this coming set of threes is, is a bit more straightforward in, at first glance. It says this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. But notice the tension here in verse 11. Instead of it being a three-part statement, we see only two things here. It says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. We're hearing again that one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three kind of cadence. Where is the tension about to resolve? Well, the tension is there on purpose because the visible people of Israel, the company of God's covenant community, did not, holistically speaking, receive Christ. They were divided. Many were blinded by Christ's coming. They didn't see him for who he was. They didn't see him as the fulfilling of all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. For though they had enjoyed the rights and privileges of the people of God, they were not the spiritual children of God. And so they rejected Christ. Many of them did. The mediator between God and man, upon whom our faith must be cast. To cast our faith upon anything else other than Christ is to ultimately reject God's peace then. God's peace, which is a right standing before God, our creator. Apart from faith in Christ, we have no righteousness of our own to merit our position before him. No interest in his promises. No communion with God. No pardon for sin. No life, ultimately. But church, hear the good news. Because that tension that was almost like a cliffhanger earlier is resolved right there for us. In the very next couple of verses, verses 12 through 13 say this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The good news is this, that the light of Christ has shone brightly, not just upon uh, the ancient people of Israel, but upon the whole world. The gospel of peace with God through Jesus alone, is for us. Our heritage, our, our bloodline, and our own volition itself cannot muster up within us the faith that is needed to receive the grace of God. Rather, the light, <clears throat> which um, shines in the darkness to an undeserving people, is effective to accomplish that for which it was set out to do, to make us become children of God. All based upon the right and the authority of Jesus alone, who saves us and who calls us by his spirit, and so gives us life in his name. This then brings us to the final 
point of our own passage this morning. Verses 14 through 18. Before we were seeing the light, and now we're about to see the glory of this passage. See, the light which we have described in verses 1 through 13 is purposed to reveal the glory now that is before us. I think of the picture of a Christmas tree, which I know a lot of us have probably set up recently. And as we were putting lights around the tree, we, uh, you know, ourselves are not looking at the lights, the bulbs themselves, because they themselves are not the actual fuller picture. Rather, the glory, the magnificence of what we are decorating with lights is the tree itself. All the glistening ornaments and the tinsel and the things that we decorate with, with things of our own past and our nostalgia with that. And the light itself that we put up around the tree is meant to shine the glory of the tree all the more and to display it. Well, in the same way, the light of Christ, what he reveals to us about God is his unmatched and unrivaled glory. And it is the praise of that glorious grace that he has shown the light of Christ upon us sinners and revealed to us his glory. The glory of the gospel is this, that the word became flesh and dwelt, or literally tabernacled amongst us. The very magnitude and glory of God himself <clears throat> was on full display in the eternal son of God who came for us, to us. I invite you to turn with me, if you will, even to Isaiah 9, 6. Verses 6 through 7 in Isaiah 9 say this very wonderful gospel truth to us. And we hear it often in this time of the year. That for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so the word, going back to John 1, took up residency amongst us. As the tabernacle and the temple in ancient Israel once had revealed the glory of the Lord before the people, so Christ in his coming to us as the greater tabernacle, the greater temple, revealed the dwelling place of God's glory right before our very eyes. He who was at the very side of the Father eternally begotten, not made, left the Father's side for us. He took upon himself our likeness and humbled himself in order to save and to deliver to the uttermost those whom he would save. And so to shine forth the glory of God and to deliver us for that glory. What wondrous love is this? That he who ranks above all the hosts of heaven above all of that, who is himself the fullness of grace and truth in the flesh, who created us for his own glory, would desire to hand deliver to us grace upon grace. <clears throat> for though the law was given to Moses, and through him the law was given to us, through Christ alone, grace and truth have come. So hear this gospel truth, that the very one who left the Father's side, left the Father's side for you. That's the mystery of the gospel. And he himself is the very one who ascended on high and who is again at the very side of the Father, interceding for us, giving us a childlike access to God our Heavenly Father. 
I think our confession systemizes this truth so well and so eloquently regarding the very humiliation and the birth of Christ. It says this, that Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, and that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become man, to be born of woman of lowly estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances that are far greater than any other ordinary abasement. See, the humility of Christ in his coming to us, it proves to us beyond a shadow of a doubt his desire for us, his desire to bring us to the side of the Father one day. And the exaltation of Christ and his conquering over death and sin and all of our shame and his ascension on high proves to us his everlasting commitment to us. We have a high priest who, though like us, by taking on human flesh, was without sin and who now intercedes for us. And so, friends, the light and the glory that we see here in this passage, they ultimately dovetail into that concept of peace, our Advent theme for this very Sunday, peace. For though we ourselves are so easily distracted by the concerns of the world, we have one who is, again, at the Father's side forevermore, pleading over us in love. He is constantly mindful of us, praying for us, interceding for us before the very throne of grace. And so as a point of application, I wonder what it would look like for us to become all the more a people who are mindful of this great truth. For as simple as that sounds, we have a prince of peace and we have a position before God that is marked by peace because of him. The prince of peace, the one in whom our soul can find rest from the weariness of this world that we all face. When we're perplexed by the alarmist nature of the news channels that we might watch, or when we're stressed out by the all-important question of what the Lord is doing in our life and where he might be directing us, or when we're distraught by the graveness of our own sin and the effects of our own sin upon other people and the sins of others upon us, where in those moments, in the midst of tension, do we find resolve? Where do we find our resolution, our rest, and our peace? It's in Christ alone. Christ himself told us that we will face trouble in this world. He taught us that much. But how do we go about facing trouble day by day? <clears throat> well, in order to address all those kinds of things, it would require many, many, many more sermons down the road. But in the meantime, the beauty of Advent is that it calls us to a childlike and simple faith, that we have a starting point, Christ himself. See, it calls us to take heart in the very one who has already overcome the world. The season of Advent calls us to the very one who is at the very side of the Father already, right now, forevermore. And so as we begin to conclude, I'd like to remind us that our peace is ultimately all about a position. It's about who we belong to. Peace itself takes heart in the safety of our God. And our position as believers is in nothing less than Christ. Perfect union with him. Perfect communion with God the Father. And so, as the psalmist once said, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. For God is our refuge and our strength and our present help in time of need. With that in mind, let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much that you are the glorious one. You are the one who um, has shown the light of Christ upon us. God, we thank you that as believers in him, we see him and, and behold him in all of his glory. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel and the beauty and the wonder of this season of Advent that calls us to be reminded of Christ coming to us, of his being born of lowly estate, he who is God of very God, he who is equal with you in power and in glory, and yet left all that in order to humble himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Lord God, we thank you that we have in him such a magnificent savior. We pray, Father, that as we turn our attention now in this time to uh, communion with him by the very spirit of Christ, may we be reminded of these things, that we are fully loved and accepted by him, and that he loved us and gave his life for us. So God, use this time as we are strengthened and nourished by these ordinary elements of the bread and the wine. Use this to strengthen us and to nourish our faith. So we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.